I first heard Rory Sutherland speak with Rick Rubin on his Tetragrammaton podcast, and I was absolutely blown away. Then I went and listened to Rory's audiobook called Alchemy. And if you get a chance to listen to this audiobook, it's fantastic because it's narrated by Rory. And when you hear him on today's episode, I think you'll understand what a treat it is to listen to him read his own book. Now, Rory is the UK vice chairman of the iconic advertising agency Ogilvy, and he's worked there for close to 40 years. We had a big conversation together. And what we've done is we split it into two parts. So in this part, part one, Rory's going to talk about how he became interested in complexity science. And he's also going to talk about how efficiency is used as a proxy for effectiveness and the damage that does. Now, if you're a first-time listener to the show and you like this episode, then I suggest you go back and you check out a pair of episodes that we recorded with W. Brian Arthur, and they're called The Economy and Complexity Science. But now to Rory. And we jump right into this. We even dispense with a lows. But you better buckle up. Because if you're familiar with Rory, you'll know that once you get him started on a topic, there is no stopping him. This is Simplifying Complexity, a podcast where we explore the underlying principles of complex systems. Systems that seem to defy our rational view of the world, like economies, ecologies, or even you or me. I'm forensic engineer Sean Brady, and I'll be your host. What's your connection with complexity science? Interesting. First of all, I suppose my kind of gateway drug to complexity science was behavioral science, and in particular sort of behavioral economics. And what you very quickly realize then is that people often make decisions in both government, public policy, and indeed in business under the pretense of non-complexity, okay? I'm very friendly with someone who you must interview, which is called Gerald Ashley, who effectively wrote a book. uh, One of the books is called No Straight Lines. And what they do is they look at the whole, which is too complex and too complicated or, or wicked to be solved, So what they do is they turn a mess into a puzzle by either oversimplifying it or ignoring the more complex parts. Then they solve for the puzzle and then reimpose the solution back on the mess. And I saw economics as doing this to a large extent by effectively ignoring the complex components of human perception and behaviour, solving for objective reality as if it were linear and as if it were ergodic and as if it were also what you might call capable of averaging, okay? You optimise kind of for the simple average, and then you pat yourself on the back because you now have a rational PowerPoint deck or Excel spreadsheet, which appears to make sense within the limited context in which you've defined the problem. And then you decide that that is therefore optimal you impose it on reality and you don't really bother to measure the consequences very much because what you've done is so wonderfully rational that you don't really need to ask any questions. And I saw that happening time and time again. And for example, one of the things you'll probably see I bring up a lot is, indeed, I co-authored a book with Pete Dyson called Transport for Humans, in which what I effectively said is that you can't model transport without considering psychology and human behaviour. And things that are non-linear 
and things that have feedback loops and goodness knows what else. You can't model transport sensibly for humans. You can model it for cargo, perhaps, but you can't model it for humans in a world where humans are allowed to make their own decisions around modes of transport. You can't model transport without acknowledging complexity and yet unbelievably to an extraordinary extent that's exactly what we do we assume that for example a reduction in journey time has linear benefits and that journey time is most of what passengers care about the other thing i think that's always interesting is one i'm quite friendly with nasim taleb and i find it extraordinary the extent to which we optimize for the average and we assume linear relationships so an example there would be, you know, in economics, the single representative agent strikes me as fundamentally bonkers. You take an average individual, optimise for the average and assume you're optimising for the whole, or you optimise for the short term and assume that must be optimising for the long term. You assume there's a single right answer, where one of my little mantras in my book is, in many cases, in reality, in a complex world, the opposite of a good idea isn't wrong. It could be another good idea. And then you could even take it even further. And here's another interview for your podcast, which is Ian McGilchrist. He's written two books, or several books anyway, but The Master and His Emissary, Latterly, the two-part monster work, The Matter with Things, which is all about effectively what you might call the two hemispheres of the human brain and how... In a better world, they work in a complementary fashion. His argument is it's not the two hemispheres of the brain do different things. They both do everything, but they do it in different ways, fundamentally different ways, which are, in the best cases, complementary to each other. But in the worst cases, McGilchrist would argue, what we do is effectively the left hemisphere predominates or preempts the right hemisphere. And so what you might call the complex whole is ignored in favour of the reductionist part. And it's very strange in business when you think about it. Some of the most eminent people who've ever written in business, like W. Edwards Deming, who say, to optimise the whole, you must sub-optimise the parts. And yet it's considered perfectly rational and uncontestable in business to say, OK, we will reduce this system into five parts, we will optimise the five parts, and then assume that is optimising the whole. I suppose what I ultimately got into is decision science. And it occurred to me that if your decision is something which, for example, involves human psychology, perception and behaviour, it's incredibly dangerous confidently to make all the assumptions, such as, as I said, the average is representative of the whole, the opposite of a good idea is necessarily wrong, there is a single right answer, etc., all of those assumptions which we typically make when we're trying to look rational to other people are really, really unsafe. That's what it all comes down to. So what about you? How did you get into it? I got into it because I'm an engineer by training and do a lot of forensic engineering. So look at why things collapse and fail. And I typically started in the whole structural side of things. And what was interesting was you're looking at these causes of failure and you start off looking at the technical causes of failure. And then you discover that very regularly, particularly in engineering, we repeat the same technical causes 
of failure. And of course, what you find behind that is this whole concept that, well, the organizational causes are all the same. And they're what's allowing these technical causes to pop up again and again and again. And the, the really interesting thing is that we knock bridges down for the same way as people get hurt in hospitals, for the same way as, as planes crash, because humans and organizations are fundamentally the same. And I think you very quickly end up with complexity because it's for all the things you're talking about. So what's very interesting is that I suppose if you ask who my heroes and villains are, to some extent my heroes are good engineers and my villains are bad engineers. And I'd include my heroes are good economists and my villains are bad economists. And there is this problem which is, well, I'll give you an example. I think really, really good statisticians are brilliant and I think half-decent statisticians are really dangerous. And part of this would come down to the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is actually, weirdly in a way, the very good statisticians or the very good economists or the very good engineers are unconfident because they are actually cognizant of the problems and mistakes and dangerous assumptions you can make. And the half-decent statisticians are actually dangerous because they've reached this comfortable mental level where they think they know it all. I'll give you a very simple example of a problem which everybody thought was simple, which was actually highly complex, which is Concorde. And when Concorde was finally withdrawn from service, largely driven actually by two things, I think the 9-11 fall off in aviation combined with the Paris air crash, Lots of people wrote a kind of peon to what a wonderful thing it was and how it was a beacon of kind of technological achievement. And I was about the only person in the newspaper saying I thought it was dumb. And the reason I thought it was dumb is very simple, okay, which is a very fundamental asymmetry, which everybody missed, which is it's a really great way of flying east to west because in London you could board the Concorde at 9 o'clock in the morning and arrive in New York in time for breakfast because you're effectively benefiting from the rotation of the Earth. The eastbound journey was problematic, because in fact, your choice was, do you leave New York at 10 o'clock in the evening after all your meetings are finished and you've had a few drinks, and then fly overnight while you're asleep and arrive in London in time for breakfast? Or do you stay an extra night in a hotel room in New York, then get up really early in the morning, slog your way to JFK against appalling traffic, take off at nine o'clock, and then land in London in the late afternoon, having spent a whole working day on a plane and an extra night in a hotel? The way to make Concord work was probably, which you couldn't do because it couldn't fly over land, was to have a whole network of Concords continually flying westbound around the world taking advantage of that effect. So you would technically have the Concorde going London, New York, New York, LA, I guess. And what would you do? I suppose you do LA, Sydney, or you do LA, Tokyo, and then you might do Tokyo, Dubai, and Dubai, London. That might have made sense. And then everybody would make their return journey by conventional means on a 747, okay? Other examples where I find the effectively the assumption of straight lines, linearity, and the assumption that you can be Newtonian about this would be very simply high-speed rail. And my argument is, first of all, there's a very big difference between saving, let's say, one person 100 hours a year, which is what high-speed one does in the UK. Effectively, making commuter rail faster has an appreciable difference to the life of commuters, Okay. On the other hand, 
reducing the journey time between, let's say, London and Manchester by an hour from two hours to one. Well, my argument is that's not really saving one person 100 hours a year. It's more akin to saving 100 people an hour a year or 200 people or whatever it might be. Now, in terms of the simple model, they're exactly the same because aggregate time saving is what matters because you're not factoring in behaviour. But if you think about it, one of them is life-changing. In other words, I can now go and move to Canterbury if I want to because the high-speed train will take me in in, a, what is it, 57 minutes instead of 90. And now Canterbury and Hellswathers of East Kent, which has a population of about, I guess, about 700,000 people, are now commutable. That's a really, really big deal. On the other hand, there aren't that many people who travel to Manchester between Manchester and London more than once a week. And there are very, very few of them. Now, the people who, like me, travel to Manchester five times a year, halving the journey time is not life-changing. It's merely a convenience. Then you add another dimension, OK? In France, which is what geographers technically call quite big as a country, not by Australian standards, but nonetheless, it's a lot bigger than the UK. When you reduce the journey time between Lyon, which is kind of the number three city in Paris and in France after Paris and Marseille, you reduce that journey time from four hours to two, that's a game changer. Because you can now kind of, if you work in Lyon, you can now get to Paris and back in a day without it being bonkers. And likewise, Parisians can go to Lyon for the day without it being insane. Four hours to two, big deal, because it's a big, big proportion of your working day. Two hours to one, not really the same. I can go to Manchester for the day as it is if I want to. And this, in a sense, the extreme of this was in a mock letter in the kind of comic magazine Viz, where someone said, businessmen save £80 billion on high speed two by simply arranging your meetings in Manchester an hour later. <laughs> That's, again, like the Concorde. Once you factor in the non-smooth, non-linear component, which is that we don't effectively, we're not awake 24 hours a day. Once you actually acknowledge non-linearity to the thing, all the rules change. And yet you have these people who go, assume linearity, solve for that, reimpose on system. I think it's a catastrophe. I think the economic idea of the single representative agent is proper whack. So let's take a very simple economic decision, OK? There's a bit of inflation. The inflation was caused by things like Russia invading Ukraine, supply chain disruption, cost of energy, OK? It wasn't really caused by consumer behaviour in that case. It wasn't like wacko people getting into a spiral of increasing prices and increasing salaries. It was caused by an external shock. So what you do is inflation, you put up interest rates. Now, the interesting thing about putting up interest rates is that whether it benefits you and how it affects your behaviour or whether it's a disaster entirely depends on who you are, OK? It's completely bifurcated. So if you put up interest rates, rich people with a lot of savings, for example, probably get better off. People who are indebted are now bankrupted. So it's not really fair to model that as if there's this single economic rational agent who's got a little bit of debt, but more in the way of saying, it's a nonsense. Solving for the average is just complete garbage. And you were talking about the concept, I've heard you talk about before, of, you know, we over-optimise the parrots, or we try and optimise the parrots, and assume by doing so, we optimise the whole. Have you got a really good example of where that went terribly wrong? Well, for example, it just causes misdirection of effort. In the best scenario, it's misdirection of effort. 
in the worst scenario, it's catastrophic. And so I'll give you an example. Funnily enough, even economics acknowledged this. I think it was Samuelson, the economist, who described financial markets as being micro-efficient and macro-inefficient. I'm very interested in and genuinely enthusiastic about remote and flexible working. I'm very, very enthusiastic about video conferencing, Zoom, Teams, etc., as a potential game changer in business for all kinds of things. I'm not saying they are automatically good. I'm saying they have the potential to be highly significant and very valuable. One of the things that interests me there is that there's an unbelievable amount of business scepticism, you know, about we need people back in the office for the serendipity. People need to be back in the office at least four days a week, regardless of who they are, what their temperament is, what their psychology is, what their job is. We need people back in the office four days a week for the serendipitous encounters that emerge, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I don't think for many people, much of the time, entirely remote working is probably optimal. Although, you know, if you want to hire someone who doesn't want to move house, it may be necessary. It may be an acceptable trade-off. But nonetheless, there's this huge scepticism about flexible working. And I think the real reason is because staff quite like it. We've introduced these things in business, which I think in many cases have been productivity catastrophes. And I'm including that the open plan office, and I'm including that email which I think are probably disastrous for productivity. But no one's really asking tough questions about it because staff don't particularly like them. So they go, well, it makes our staff really busy and they don't like it very much, so it's probably good, you know. The second a technological innovation comes along, which people really enjoy, suddenly everybody goes, oh, we must clamp down on this. I'm suspicious. You know, people might be playing golf during the day. Well, actually, if you think about it, Playing golf during the day, provided you aren't bunking off from any kind of physical meetings, is highly desirable. In fact, humans would almost certainly be vastly more productive if they worked in the morning, took the afternoon off, and then worked again in the evening or the early evening when it's dark and there's nothing else to do. Humans would almost certainly be more productive working like that. The reason we didn't work like that is precisely because of the commute, because people didn't want to commute into London at 7 o'clock in the morning, then spend three hours hanging around doing nothing, and then go home at 8 o'clock, OK? But email is what I'd call micro-efficient and macro-inefficient. If you look at it narrowly as a single piece of communication, so you think of an email as replacing a single written or typed memo being sent by post to another individual, such as would have been the normal kind of communication up until, roughly speaking, 1990, I guess. No, actually a bit later than that. It would have been 94, 95. The way you communicate in the office is you type things out and you either put them in the Royal Mail, or you sent them in some sort of internal posts to other people, or you phoned them up. No one would dispute for a second that email is both cheaper and faster and indeed more efficient to produce than post is. So at the micro level, email is a triumph. However, at the systemic level, email is a catastrophe. Let me give you a very simple example, OK? Let's say we had to... We Well, in fact, we didn't. This is one of the reasons I still have a PA. I had to set the time and date for this podcast, OK? By email, that could take four or five days between the UK and Australia of back-and-forthing 
over what about Wednesday? No, I can't do Wednesday. What about this? No, that doesn't work for me. Okay, it's ludicrously because effectively it's an asynchronous mode of communication. Things like arranging a date for something over email, which is what we tend to do, are just painfully slow. The individual email is instantaneous, but the end-to-end process takes fucking ages. Now, let's say we decided that this podcast was so interesting we wanted to do another one, and we both opened up our calendars over a spoken conversation. We'd have the answer in literally four minutes. If we tried to do the same thing over email, particularly allowing for the time difference between the UK and Australia, my hunch would be the end-to-end process of getting to that date would be five days. So what we've allowed email to do is to remove things from synchronous mode, from phone conversations, which would have been the case in 1992, and replace them with an asynchronous mode of one-way conversation. Because it looks more efficient than what it replaces, we basically pat ourselves on the back and don't ask any tough questions. And actually, it's a catastrophe. Now, my argument is one of the great things with remote and flexible working is if we have more Zoom calls and we have fewer email exchanges, that in itself could be a huge contributor to the speed of getting from A to B in terms of agreement and decision making. But no one's looking at it like this because they're looking at the individual part, not the whole. I think that's so true, isn't it? Because was it you who said in a podcast that emails is a wonderful concept, but you realize you can email someone immediately, but what you miss is that everyone else can email you too. (laughs) So suddenly your dig is pulled. Well, here's an interesting way of looking at it, okay, which is, you know, I'm the vice chairman of a company, so you would expect me to be kind of communicating in roughly equal measure to the broadcasting in roughly equal measure to the extent to which I receive, or maybe a sane ratio of maybe five to one or whatever it may be. In other words, I read five times as many incoming things as I generate them. But if I look at reality, now in a phone call, Patently, this is a two-way thing. You talk to me, I talk to you. There's an equality in that, okay? Because of things like the BCC field, the CC field, the ease of producing bulk emails, if I look at the ratio, I probably receive 400 emails a day and I send four. By which, when I say send, I obviously reply to more of them. But the number of emails I actually generate is probably four to six. Everything else is a fucking reply or it's just a read and archive. Then you add a further burden, which is that with the post, not necessarily by design, but by accident, you could prioritise, oh, it's a first-class stamp, it's a handwritten envelope, it's come with by FedEx, okay? The stuff that costs more to send is probably more important to look at first. So the burden of prioritisation was performed by the sender. Now the burden of prioritisation is performed by the recipient, And there's a great book, by the way, I really recommend. It's called Algorithms to Live By. Very, very interesting book. By the way, I'm going to blow smoke up your ass here. I think the level of intellectual kind of discussion and inquiry in Australia, probably true of New Zealand as well, is now higher than anywhere else in the world as a proportion of population. Why? Got to ask you why. Well, one of my theories, I'm quite friendly with Nicholas Gruen, you know, the uh, Australian economist as well, who I regard as an absolute polymath and genius. And I think a little bit of it is that it's a bit like Australian fauna, which is because you kind of evolve in isolation, 
you develop more interesting forms. So an Australian economist like Steve Keane or Nicholas Gruen, because he hasn't been kind of subsumed by this kind of saltwater, freshwater, East Coast, West Coast, American kind of economic norms, is much more likely to end up somewhere interesting as a kangaroo economist, as it were, than an economist who's part of a sort of absolutely main system. It's the other thing that Darwin, the Galapagos Islands, evolution on islands is kind of more interesting than it is in, in some ways it leads to more interesting solutions to evolution in very large land masses. But algorithms to live by is very interesting because they're very conscious of something called switching costs, which is each time the human brain switches from doing one thing to focusing on another thing, there's a kind of massive, well... In a sense, loss of focus and waste of time caused by switching. People who do deep work fundamentally need long periods of uninterrupted time. You will not have the same problem-solving ability if you have five lots of one hour as you do if you have one chunk of five hours, for example. And yet the number of times you notice that people are making the assumption that five times one equals one times five when quantitatively they're the same, but qualitatively they're totally different, just astonishes me. How do you write your books, Rory? How do you carve out, you know, you're busy, how do you carve out the time? How do you find that time for deep work? I'm just about to embark on writing the next one. And one of the things I notice about that, I don't know if this is true about all people or all forms of writing, but one of the things I notice when writing a book is that If you have five days in a row dedicated only to writing the book, in the midst of other things, the first day you don't achieve anything, you get down a Wikipedia rabbit hole and you write about 120 words. Day two, you actually make a bit of progress and you probably write 800 words, right? Day three or day four, you start writing 1,500 words a day, 2,000 words a day. Really, really productive. Therefore, if you try and write a book every Friday, it's going to be inordinately less productive than effectively if every five weeks you take a week off work and dedicate it towards book writing. Another very interesting thing, by the way, which is another reason why email is a massive time vampire. Just think about this, okay? If we upload this conversation, the audio of this conversation, into, let's say, Otter, you know, into online transcription, the conversation will probably be about 10,000 words in two hours. Now, that technically means that if you could just sit down and dictate a book, you could write a hardback book in a day. It would be extremely tiring. It probably wouldn't be brilliantly structured because conversation isn't, which is one of its virtues, by the way. Conversation can go off-piste in a way in which email exchanges don't, and sometimes the digression is actually valuable. We speak much, much faster than we type. We read slightly faster than we listen, which is why audiobooks take quite a long time to listen to. So there are advantages to the written word in speed of consumption. But email is using a very slow form of generation. If you ever met someone who spoke at the speed that most people typed, you'd punch them in the face after about half an hour. And if you just imagine this conversation, okay, so I would now, my next sentence would be, we are not fully aware of the extent to which tipping, delete, 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 typing is slower than speaking. Be unlistenable at that speed. Just the bandwidth is just atrocious, okay? I mean, it's just painful. 
And yet we're totally happy saying, no, no, let's not have a phone call. Let's do everything using our thumbs. Okay, right. And it fascinates me in a way, because one of the arguments I used in my book is I said that there are certain things that feel fast because they're fast. If you're quite a fast typist, you think I'm doing this quickly. You're not conscious of how much faster you'd be going if you were in a different medium, if you were speaking. I'll give you an example of this. So first question is, email maybe should just be recorded voice rather than type. Second thing is, I can walk faster, probably I can certainly run faster than an Olympic swimmer can swim. But we think of the Olympic swimmer as being fast because by context of someone thrashing around in the water, they're actually moving quite quickly. Compared to a basically relatively infirm, overweight Englishman, okay, actually with feet on the ground, Olympic swimmers are shit. (laughs) And I think email's like that, okay? I'm quite a fast typist, so this is great. I'm actually being really productive. But if you're actually speaking you would have knocked off work three hours earlier. Why do we want to do the emails? Why are we addicted to the emails rather than picking up the phone? And why is that getting worse? Why do we seem to, the new generation doesn't want to talk at all? No, I mean, my children regard a ringing landline as kryptonite. I mean, they look at the thing as if, you know, what's going on here? By the way, there are problems as well. You know, my daughters were until recently both students. Now, in the old days, you might have had a student house and it might have had one telephone which meant that if you couldn't get hold of your child, you could get a message to them within the constraints of how reliable students are passing on messages. Whereas now, if you can't get hold of your daughter because the mobile phone switched off, there's literally no plan B. The landline did have a kind of fallback, which was leave a message. Now, if you can't get hold of someone on their mobile, the onus is on you to keep on trying endlessly or whatever. As you can text them, that's probably the best thing to do under those circumstances. But it is very interesting in that quite a lot of things, just as I said that, you know, I think it is Samuelson who said that things can be micro-efficient while being macro-inefficient. I think a lot of things are micro-intelligent while being macro-dumb. And there are a lot of things which are short-term intelligent but long-term stupid. Okay, here's an example of this, which I've actually named, which I call the Dorman fallacy. And the Dorman fallacy is something which I, funnily enough, I only kind of mentioned it casually in passing in my book, and it kind of went viral as a thing. And the idea is you run a hotel, okay, and the hotel employs a doorman, and you bring in Accenture or somebody, okay, to say, how do we make our hotel more efficient? That, by the way, is the first mistake, because you've used the word efficient rather than effective or profitable, okay? You've used efficiency as a proxy for something else, And Accenture will say, I'm using this metaphorically, okay, well, you've got a doorman. In fact, you've got two or three doormen because they work on shifts. And that's costing you, let's say, you know, £100,000 a year in salary cost. And you then say, right, well, we're going to function of the doorman as opening the door. We will then replace the doorman with an automatic infrared door opening mechanism, which does cost you £5,000, but this will save you £90,000 a year on doorman salaries. And it's going to do the opening the door automatically. So let's all pat ourselves on the back for our wonderful efficiency achievement and cost saving and walk away confident that we've made a great decision. But the point is, and indeed, in the short term, that looks great, right? Because the hotel's still charging the same amount of money. The hotel still has the usual complement of guests and everything works pretty well. And you go, gosh, look at this wonderful quarterly cost saving, which we can now put on a spreadsheet and present upwards uh, as part of our quarterly report. 
The point is that the function of the doorman is only partly opening the door. They hail taxis, you know, they help with luggage. They provide recognition to regular guests, which regular guests really value. They provide a degree of status to the hotel. And they also, perhaps, they provide a degree of security. In other words, you don't get vagrants sleeping in the doorway of a hotel if there's a doorman there, because he tells them to sling their hook, right? And so you make this wonderful decision, and everybody congratulates themselves on the cost saving. But then what you discover is a year later, the front of the hotel has become a bit of a slum, and the rack rate's fallen out of bed because you're now no longer a five-star hotel, you're a four-star hotel, whatever it is. And your regular customers don't like it anymore because nobody recognises them when they arrive and says, welcome back. And this is what I mean, that the biggest trick that gets played, where you pretend things that are complex are not, is this proxy, which is efficiency being treated as a proxy for effectiveness. Here's a theory of mine, which I'd like you to discuss, because there are a load of people, I hope, listening to this podcast who know a hell of a lot more than, about complexity than I do. But it's that optimising for efficiency tends to cause homogeneity of approach, which therefore reduces resilience. And my argument is the thing that makes business resilient is not a focus on efficiency, it's a focus on the customer. And customers are whimsical, complex, ever-changing. And they're very, very variegated and different. And if you focus on customers, it tends to produce inefficiency in that there are a lot of people producing tomatoes, but the tomatoes are very, very different and, and genetically different, produced in a different way and serve a lot of different needs. And therefore, overall, the tomato market is resilient. If you optimise for efficiency, you end up with Dutch polytunnel tomatoes, which look great, cost very little to produce, can be produced all year round with minimal energy costs. But unfortunately, first of all, taste of nothing, because everybody's been optimising for weight, appearance and all the factors apart from taste. But secondly, they're unbelievably homogeneous, which is bad news for cooking, but it's also bad news for resilience. The example I gave of that is during the pandemic, we were to some extent saved, particularly the elderly, by grocery delivery firms. I don't know what Australia's like. We've got a cardo. All of the main supermarkets effectively will deliver. You can place your order online and they'll come around with a van for an order over about £1,500 and they'll basically deliver it for either free or a pretty small fee. None of the supermarkets wanted to introduce that because it's actually less efficient for them than having customers come to a supermarket and buy shit. But they had to do it because once one online player came along and offered the option, everybody else had to do it because otherwise they realised that if you lost the 10% of your customers who, or 20% of your custom that had a high propensity to shop online, that was a catastrophe. For a, for a supermarket retailer. So to defend this 20%, everybody had to offer delivery, which was less efficient than having people coming to the shop and taking it all home. But that focus on the variegated customer led to resilience, which meant that at a time when people couldn't go to supermarkets, there was an alternative. In the same way McDonald's had introduced delivery, drive-through windows, you know, remote ordering, screens, lots and lots of different ways of ordering. 
if you're customer focused, businesses which are customer focused will tend to create a resilient ecosystem because how do I optimize for customer value is an open-ended question capable of lots of different answers. I mean, two answers for how do I satisfy a customer is I strip out everything that's not necessary and I make the product really cheap. And another answer to the question, how do I optimize for customer value, is actually I add a lot of bells and whistles and I make the product more expensive. They're both satisfactory answers to the same question, and there is room in an economy for both of those solutions. Do you have Henry vacuum cleaners? Yes, you do, yes. In a kind of diverse, consumer-focused, marketing-led ecosystem, there's room for the Dyson and there's room for the Henry. There's room for Qantas and there's room for EasyJet and Virgin Australia, okay? The miracle of capitalism, of consumer capitalism, is that it comes up with lots of different answers to the same question which through a, a second invisible hand, if you like, creates resilience. Once you get people saying, oh gosh, all this consumer stuff's a bit too fluffy and vague for me, let's just pretend we're optimizing for efficiency, you get Dutch tomatoes, I know that's not a very good analogy for Australians, but you get polytunnel, mass-produced, tasteless tomatoes. The problem with rationality is it tends to take everybody to completely the same answer. This shallow rationality tends to drive everybody to the same place, which then, of course, reduces value in the marketplace because there's only one kind of tomato. And it turns tomato growing as a race to the bottom to simply produce the same kind of utterly indifferent tomato at the lowest price possible. An ecosystem where the market is consumer focused and human value and psychological value focused, as in Austrian economics, say, rather than neoliberal economics, will produce diversity, it will create value in lots of different complementary ways, and the unintended gain you get as a byproduct of this divergence is resilience. And is there any particular product or part of the market that really does that really well, Rory, that, that shouldn't? The economists would say we should just have one of these things. Oh, lots of them. Probably one which would be very, very good for both Brits and Australians would be the restaurant, cafe, sort of general food other than groceries market. If you think about it, it's hyper-Darwinian. And Nassim Taleb writes very well about this, where he says that you could easily make the mistake of thinking that running a restaurant is a piece of piss because you see lots of restaurants kicking around that are full of people selling a lot of booze and clearly making a lot of money. But as Nassim Taleb says, the graveyard of failed restaurants is a very silent place. And what you realise if you look at, let's say you have a town with a great restaurant scene, what you forget about is all the restaurants that failed and disappeared. And I had a lovely example of this. I think looking at restaurants, everything from McDonald's and KFC all the way up to independent and Michelin-starred places, it's a really, really interesting ecosystem because, first of all, fashions change. Secondly, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. The American diner had a big menu. McDonald's went and competed with a really, really small menu. Really, really limited menu. McDonald's, in a sense, took the American diner concept, which is food prepared to order from an enormous menu where you can have your eggs done in 17 different ways, over easy, sunny side up, scramble, poached, fried, etc. Okay, And they basically took that and they just said, OK, we're going to have food prepared in advance for a really small menu rather than food produced to order for a really big menu. Classic case of you know, opposite of a good idea is another good idea which when you're optimising for efficiency or optimising for narrow rationality, you're convinced there's only one right answer. 
And you're also convinced that there are no contradictions inherent in the thing. Because sometimes the right answer is two opposite right answers. What do you mean by that? The explore-exploits trade-off isn't a trade-off. I'm sorry to people who listen to me a lot. I'm really sorry to talk about the bees again because I don't want to become a bore. But the fact that some bees optimise, some bees obey the waggle dance, some bees don't. After they discovered, the guy won a Nobel Prize for discovering the waggle dance in bees. And it's how they communicate with each other about where the honey, where the nectar is, isn't that in the pollen is? Where the nectar, where the pollen, and where the, I think there's something else they connect, possibly water, but also resin, okay? And they communicate and they go, it's relative to, I think, the position of the sun. And they can tell a load of other bees, if you head off and travel three quarters of a mile to the northwest, you'll find a lot of nectar or a lot of pollen. And the bees, now it's very clever, by the way, the better the source of pollen, let's say, the longer they dance for. Now, that's not because the other bees are going, let me take out my bee stopwatch and measure how long it is. Because if this guy's dancing for a long time, it must be a great source of pollen. It's simply that the longer you dance for, the more chance there is that bees see your dance. And so for an insignificant find or discovery, they'll only dance for a short time. And for a significant find, they'll do the dance for much, much longer. And as a result, they'll have a larger audience over time and therefore more bees will be sent out and then as the source gets depleted the length of the dance decreases so there's a feedback loop which means it's self-correct but the bees also do a thing which they go off at random now bee scientists were amazed by this at first because it's suboptimal in the short term okay this is another case of being short-term rational long-term irrational And indeed, if you had a load of accountancy bees and compliance bees, they'd say, we want 100% compliance with the Waggle Dance. We don't want any deviation, no exploration at all. Just all collect nectar from where we know it's to be collected and we'll have optimal short-term efficiency, which indeed you would do. Except you get trapped in a local maximum and the hive starves to death when the environment changes. Now, in algorithm design, in animal foraging, there's a thing called the explore-exploit trade-off, which is the trade-off between the resources you dedicate to exploiting what you already know and the resources you dedicate to, that's exploit what you already know versus explore what you don't yet know or what is new or what is recent. It's a constant updating. Now, now, the random bees, in fairness, have to report back. If the random bees discover something good, the the system only works if the random bees share their discovery with the rest of the hive. It's not that the random bees don't waggle dance. It's simply that they ignore the waggle dance to begin with. And that's what happened. They modelled it as a complex system and realised that if you don't have a certain number of bees ignoring the waggle dance, you get four problems. There's total lack of resilience because you're over-dependent on what you already know and you're over-optimised on the past. You can also never get lucky. So you're, you don't have, as Nassim would say, high surface area exposure to positive to future upside optionality because you're basically dependent on what you already know. Now, what's interesting is in algorithm design, it's called the explore-exploit trade-off. When you think about it systemically, it's not a trade-off. It's two complementary parts of the same system. So it's two opposites working harmoniously because you can't exploit effectively if you don't explore. And equally, there's no point in exploring if you can't exploit what you discover. So when we call it a trade-off, that in itself is bad nomenclature, I think. We shouldn't call it a trade-off. We should call it the yin and the yang of explore and exploit. We should go heavily Asian on the idea of kind of the unity of opposites or the complementarity of two opposites. I mean, Nassim Talent has a kind of barbell investment strategy, which he writes about, which is barbell is 
You don't optimize for the average, you optimize for two complementary extremes. And that would be you put 80% of your money in treasury bills, low chance of bankruptcy, absolutely surefire, consistent return, and then you ignore the middle and then you put 20% you could afford to lose in like, you know, a mixture of like Broadway plays and dot-com startups or whatever. They're the explorer bees. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason is you're exploiting an asymmetry because although the chance of failure is quite high in that right-hand side of the barbell, chance of complete bankruptcy is quite high, but the upside from success is potentially limitless. There's only so much you can gain from an immediate journey to collect nectar from a pre-existing known source, which is basically value of nectar collected and then subtract energy required to connect nectar. But there's a finite upside to that activity. Whereas the upside from a discovery of a completely new source of flowers is potentially 10,000 times greater. So bees are effectively pursuing a barbell strategy, which is two opposites rather than one average. The average investment strategy would be you put all your money in medium risk things. And that is the end of part one. Make sure you join us in part two in our next episode. Thanks for listening to Simplifying Complexity, where we look at the key concepts of complexity science with expert minds from across the world. Concepts like emergence, self-organization, adaptation, networks, scaling, tipping points, and much more. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood and Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. I'm Sean Brady, and I'll see you in our next episode. Bye.